What is going on, everybody? Hopefully, you guys are all doing well out there. Yeah, boy, we are back on the Sports Card Show podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Got um, uh, quite a few topics lined up here, uh, mainly from the manufacturer side. So we'll run down kind of each one. Tops has some noobs. Upper Deck has some news. Um, and Panini will kind of discuss what we talked about on the last show. With Tops, we're seeing this shit with Upper Deck too. We're seeing this shift into a distribution strategy that quite honestly I was um, you know kind of telegraphed that was going to hit the industry uh, several years ago I actually did a show one show number 136 I believe this is show uh, 189 if you count some of the other ones we haven't numbered we're well into the 190th show in our eighth year way back on August 6th 6th 2013. You don't have to go check your calendars, guys. I'll remind you that it's 2016. I had a show called Soul to Squeeze Out at the Nationals. Essentially, my argument was at the time, again, this was in 2013, that the hobby just wasn't big enough to be sharing the profits on these boxes with distributors. And it's not that we don't like distributors. It's not that they don't do a good job when they're needed. But to just be 100% honest, and I think it's, it's quite clear to everybody now, it's clear to me back in 2013. So you can see now, finally, uh, these companies are finally catching up with yours truly, but um, they're finally starting to squeeze out that layer of cost because the distributor just isn't needed. I, maybe not... All the time, I don't think Tops is going to sell every product it has on their website direct. Um, maybe not in the near future. Maybe in the distant future they will. But um, I think they still have the need and use for a distributor in the future. But I, I think that reliance on on sending their product to them, having them then distribute it to a shrinking number of hobby stores that exist, I think that model is going away. And so... What I what I found surprising with Tops is the manner in which they pulled the rug out underneath uh, a product which was just several weeks from being released. So we'll talk about that. Talk about Tops now. We'll talk about Tops Bunt has a um, physical card set that essentially is coming out. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk a little bit about Upper Deck, who kind of again being kind of the smallest. Of the two companies, uh, compared to Panini and Tops, Upper Deck is is likely the smallest in terms of uh, its sales right now. Um, obviously, looking back in its history, it might you you could argue that it has as much history or more than certainly Panini and maybe even Tops in some cases. But um, they were nimble enough early on to kind of innovate on this EPAC, and I think Tops is kind of following in their footsteps. Uh, Panini being the kind of the largest and most kind of lumbering company and the one with the most difficult ownership structure where you have kind of the parent company based actually not even in this country. You'll see them react the, the slowest and be kind of a copycat in the market, which they've done with their digital apps. And I'm sure they'll do with some kind of more direct to consumer strategy um, from that front. We'll talk briefly at the end i got a tweet uh not few, too many days ago asking about um a gentleman was asking so you know basically what kind of cards should he buy and sell to you know he's got a son that he's kind of wants to just buy and sell some cards and what should he be looking for what are the kind of cards that he could be targeting maybe putting in a watch list or actually maybe making a purchase to look to resell so we'll talk about that um gts Live, I believe it's what it's called. I'm making I'm trying to make you guys aware of this. And to be quite honest with you, I've only been able to catch one episode. I've been really busy. Um, I know I don't uh, I'm, that's not often the case with me, but I have been very busy the last um, several weeks. And it's kind of snowballed into where I have a lot of other stuff that I, I need to catch up on now. And I'm trying to buy a house at the same time. And so all that kind of you know, 
it's a blessing, but at the same time, it, in my price range, it's not like I'm I'm shopping uh, I'm shopping those homes that you see on TV. So, anyways, but GTS has a, a new web show. It features Ivan, who is the 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 actor that is behind the Breaks miniseries on YouTube, which I've uh, mentioned on this show before, and tried to support them. Um, in just any small way that I can. And it also features Rob, who used to be a host, one of the hosts of Cardboard Connection Radio, which um, I don't think is around anymore. So he used to be the host of that. I think before that he – I can't remember of his show before that. Um, but they used to they used to have a regular show and – um, often, you know, hosted from the national. So he has this live show back. I, th- I believe he, uh, Rob is the one that he's actually working for GTS in some other capacities. And he, he's, and, and maybe one of his roles is to have started this web show. And so I thought, thought, um, many of you will be familiar with both of those people. And, but you may or may not be familiar that, they have a show going on. It's it's I think several weeks old at this point. I know it's I called it a web show because you can watch it on YouTube. They may I don't know if they have a podcast form, but you probably want to just go to either Twitter and try to do a search, or you could search for like GTS Distributors website, and you can probably find links on their their website. I'll try to throw a link up in the show notes of this show as well. Um, as another way for you to find that. Um, that's about it. I have group breaking dead here in a question mark. I don't know if I want to talk about that, but um, we'll, we'll, that it'll segue into what I want to talk about with tops, and is it's that their distribution model could very well mean that group breaking n- not necessarily dies out, but the need for having a breaker there might die out. Certainly with something like EPAC and some of this other stuff, the need for even having a breaker just adds a layer of cost and you know time and you have to be on the breaker schedule. Whereas if I'm open EPACs, I could be it could be one o'clock in the morning. I could have just gotten paid or whatever and I can be breaking EPACs. So Tops is shifting very quickly to kind of a direct to consumer model. And I believe that this will continue. I don't believe this is a one off thing. Uh, the reason why I believe that is because Tops Finest was long pre ordered and only a few weeks from coming out. I don't think the anticipation around the product was likely. Um, you know, I'm sure it's about, it was likely about where Tops probably normally expects a, a set like Topps Finest, especially when there's other baseball sets on the market and other prospects people are chasing at the moment, but, and even certain, some of last year's stuff and, and two years old. So Topps Finest baseball was about to be released. Dealers had their pre-orders in. And if you are familiar with this business, you know, oftentimes dealers will take either deposits or they'll kind of pre-sell this stuff or they'll have commitments for it kind of built in already and so Tops basically sent out an email and basically what Tops did is they put their hand on their crotch and pulled it upwards. You know what I mean? Like that's really what Tops did. Okay. Uh, this product was about it, it's not like finest w- was a set they just announced and they announced that oh yeah, it's only going to be available on tops.com. No, this is after dealers have already ordered Tops. Tops sends an email out, grabs its crutch, pulls it up, and says, Sorry, dealers, you are no longer getting your, I mean, they said dealers and distributors, you are no longer getting Tops Finest Baseball. The only way to get it is by buying it directly on Tops.com for, I think, $7.99, which was, which was like full, full retail price. Full, 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 full retail price. Like what you'd see it like if you went to like a stadium or something, you know, it's like a $12 beer at a stadium is like, 
full retail price for a beer. And so $800 for a finest case is full retail price. So certainly had some people up in arms. I certainly can understand anybody that's pre-ordered, anybody that wants the status quo of how products are distributed to continue. They certainly want this. They don't want someone like Tops. People like blowout cards, distributors, breakers. All these guys are going to try to convince you the collector out there that this is bad. This is going to raise prices and all this stuff. I really don't. I have a completely opposite view. I actually, again, I telegraphed that the companies really should be doing this all the way back into 2013. So there's me grabbing my crotch and pulling it upwards and pumping it saying, I envisioned this all the way back into 2013. So if you're a breaker, if you're a dealer, if you're a blowout cards type or whoever, a distributor, you should have seen this coming. And I'm, I know the more intelligent people in this business, there's only a handful, but they likely saw this coming. It's not that big of a deal for their business because their business is so broad, especially distributors. Their business is so broad that one set, one manufacturer, even if baseball cards goes away, it's not going to destroy their whole business model. Some of you breakers... Some of the online retailers, maybe not. This might hurt your business model, but you're going to have to adapt. However, this is my thought is that by top selling this product and others on its own website, I believe they're going to be able to create demand at whatever price they put it at. Okay. And here's why, because as we all know, tops is going to put this product on their website for $800. Now, now a certain population of people are going to buy it. And we, we can all make stereotypes about who those kind of peoples are, what kind of money they have or don't have, or what kind of intelligence they have, or they don't have. But bottom line is those people are, are born in a free country likely and they're and even if they're not they're in my book they're they're it's okay for them to spend their money however they want people are going to buy tops finest baseball from tops.com the day it comes out for whatever tops has on it they could be asking 1799 1700 you know $1700 and people would still buy it okay uh, you know there would still be people that take the chance on it uh, a few of the cards will, I'm sure, trickle onto eBay. And again, this is like kind of the worst case scenario. Everybody boycotts it. Only a handful of people buy it. A couple people buy it, and the guy or girl puts the cards on eBay. What do you guys think is going to happen when a set is on the market and there's only a few cards listed on eBay? It pretty much happens with every single set that comes out. Sometimes you go to Target. And you'll see a, bo a blaster box of a set that doesn't come out for a week. You'll often be on eBay a week before there's whatever baseball set. Um, it, it happens sometimes more than others. Um, I don't know if it's still happening, but certainly when I was following new releases extremely close, closely, you often saw the cards released uh, a week prior at certain retail locations. So... My point is, Tops is going to sell this product on their website. A few people are going to buy it. At worst, list it on eBay. They're going to get $4 a base card. Uh, inserts are going to sell for a lot of money. Uh, someone's going to, and then dealers are then going to sit back and do the math. They're going to say, wow, that guy put on his, uh, bought a box or bought a case and he got $4 a base card and he got $20 for this parallel card. So instantly, dealers are going to pull out their American Express cards or whatever uh, credit card provider they have and charge themselves a case of Top's Finest. Those dealers will get those boxes, open up, put them on eBay. Top's will have gotten what it wanted. It will have gotten the dealers who were on the sidelines in the beginning to buy the product at full price because a few collectors or a few maybe smaller sellers decided to take the gamble and the risk and buy the product. Now, the worst thing that can happen for Tops is they come out with this product and nobody buys it. But even then, it's not that bad. They've already tried to create demand for it at $800. They certainly can make one call to blow out cards, maybe a call to a breaker, maybe a call to a couple different people, and probably unload this set 
for exactly what they were trying to sell it for originally. And that's likely what they'll do with the like the last remaining inventory. My guess is Tops is not sitting there. The employees you see tweeting are not going to be sitting there packaging up your boxes. These boxes all get sent to either Amazon or who who fulfill a lot of people might not know this, but Amazon fulfills a lot of your e-commerce stuff even if you don't buy it on Amazon. So it can come in its own box, its own receipt, and you can it doesn't for an extra fee, you can basically make it look like Amazon didn't do it. That's gonna be a big part of Amazon. That's gonna be likely the biggest part of Amazon's business and not just buying and selling Amazon Prime items and stuff like that. So but uh Amazon tangent there. But anyways, so Tops packages up this Tops finest stuff, sends it to GSI or Amazon or some of the one of these fulfillment warehouses places, and the, you know they're in no hurry at that point. Likely there's no penalty to have the inventory sitting there for at least a few months. So Tops is going to let it play its course and try to sell as many boxes as it can at eight hundred dollars. And then once they feel the demand uh, is there or not there, they'll either put it on sale on their website and be able to move through a lot more of the inventory, or they'll call some distributor who I'm sure will still be picking up the phone when Tops calls. And then you know who knows what a distributor is willing to pay per case if if he's offered some kind of exclusive deals, exclusive window where he's the only one with Tops Finest. He might be willing to pay more than what dealers were willing to pay now. So ultimately, long-winded way of saying, I love what Tops is doing. They should have been doing this since uh, to about 2013 when I basically first mentioned this strategy. That this is the future of trading cards. That these manufacturers are going to be making cards, whether it's Sets or Tops Now or EPACs, whatever it is. I don't really care what it is. The mode to the customer needs to be direct, needs to be right off Topps' website, right off Upper Deck's website. Don't send them to eBay like they used to. Don't send them to some other website that you just set up. Send them to your own website and have them buy right off there. So Topps is implementing that strategy. I don't see them switching from that strategy in fact i see them moving further towards that strategy so that's why i have on my little sheet of paper here group breaker maybe group breaking's not dead but the group breaker who this is kind of their primary source of income whoo you guys should be getting extremely nervous because um the shift towards selling to the consumer is going to eliminate the need for you the breaker um, in a certain degree and certainly as technology cuts up catches up a little bit as the digital and physical cards start combining a little bit then uh, certainly with something like epac is, is is almost kind of the most you know the most the best example of that right now i mean what do i need a breaker for if i can just epac everything so certainly upper decks only when executing it in that fashion right now but you better believe Tops and Panini and all these these companies who all they do is copy each other, they're they're gonna do it. Okay, EPAC is coming for every single company. They might the stupid employees on Twitter and those people. Trust me, those weren't the people. The reason why they're not commenting on Tops Finest uh, Baseball is because those kind of people don't make supply chain decisions. Those are not the you know people who make supply chain decisions don't tweet about the company okay they do they do not tweet if you're a large investor with madison dearborn or with the torrent group or whatever it's called that michael eisner if you're one of the big wigs that basically gave those guys money so they could buy tops and you want to know about tops supply chain then yeah you could pick up the phone and call these guys and they'll tell you but the the people on twitter are not they're simply not going to be the employees that are going to tell you, oh, you know, what's going on in the supply chain. Why did Tops change its decision on finest? None of those people know this. All this came from the top. Briefly, Tops bunt kind of, you know, like I said, we're going to see this digital physical keep morphing into kind of basically what EPAC is to where 
Bowman baseball came out or in Topps Finest baseball comes out and not, you know, not only am I just being able to buy it on Topps.com, I should be able to open it instantly on Topps.com exactly like how I do on, on Upper Deck's EPAC site. That capability, guys, some of you guys, would we'd have to, you know, your, your wives would, you, we'd have to put you on divorce watch. Some of you guys, I know this for a fact. Some of you guys listening, I guarantee you, if Tops had e-packs, would have credit cards that are maxed out to the max. Because I've seen how addictive e-pack is. My brother's hooked on e-packs. He doesn't know any of these hockey guys. He's never watched a game of hockey all year. So imagine if it was baseball, imagine if it was football, imagine if it was sport people actually care about. So Panini, I don't know what you guys are, you know, I actually, we'll talk about Panini in a little bit. I know what they're more, they're more worried about other stuff. They got way better, bigger concerns than trying to copy EPAC, but um, Tops is headed that way. And when it does, this group breaker dead question mark, it's going to be group breaker dead period once, uh, once that happens. So what we're going to do now is actually take a break. I know we don't do that very often, but we're going to take a break just for technical purposes and to make sure I don't lose this show uh, because this is actually the second time I've recorded this show. I recorded the show yesterday and we had technical failure. And so I'm recording it again. So we are going to go piece by piece, step by step here. When we come back, we're going to talk, we're going to run down a little bit of Upper Deck, a little bit of Panini. We're going to talk NFL Draft. I'm going to have to toot my own home. We're going to cue the band over here. I have like a an orchestra over here, and it's all horn. It's, I just have the horn section, and I'm going to cue them because the quarterback that I mentioned, obviously there was Goff, and there was Wentz, and there's there's all these other quarterbacks. There's Hackenberg and some of these other quarterbacks that went early. But I, I picked out a quarterback picked out a quarterback from a school that a lot of people probably don't watch their football games. NC State had a quarterback that I've been watching for the last two years. And I even compared him to an NFL great, Donovan McNabb. So I'll tell you what team ended up drafting him. And also, I pretty much gushed over a running back who went very high in the draft and likely will spearhead a lot of the interest and value, uh, at least from his perspective, on cards early on in the season. So if you listen to my NFL draft preview, uh, you should have already been aware of a lot of these guys. But if not, I'm going to cue the, the, the horn section over here. Since I watched college football all last season, I'm pretty comfortable in knowing who has a chance at actually making an impact next year. So listen up. We'll take a break and we'll be back right after this. excited um to kind of watch the nfl draft again i've been i told people and i think i even said on this podcast i quit football after watching the Bengals, and even right now it's very difficult to uh, talk about the Bengals. so i'm still in pain in deep 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 pain about how their season ended however 
I will say I'm super excited. I, I've I've often thought the Bengals, the Bengals have obviously drafted well. Nobody wants to go there uh, as a free agent typically. No one of any – and free agent's kind of dead as it is for the most part in the NFL because the careers are so short. But um, So you have to draft well, and I felt the, dra- the Bengals, considering they've been in the playoffs, they've had some disappointments as we know, but they've been in the playoffs, they've been a good team. Um, so, and, that, and there's something to be said about that. And it, it comes from drafting well. And I was really excited with what they do. I don't want to turn this into a Bengals podcast, but the corner that they picked, um, very early in the season, I remember you literally couldn't play. If you play DFS, uh, you pretty much couldn't start a guy uh, that played against Houston in, in previous years. That wasn't the case. In fact, you actually targeted the Houston defense, but the corner, especially they have, I think they had probably other players on that team, but I remember the corner that the Bengals drafted in the first round was uh, exceptional. The wide receiver that the Bengals drafted in the second round, again, I'm trying not to make this a Bengals show, but I did mention Tyler Boyd um, on my previous show I believe it's the previous show where I ran down kind of the NFL draft he's a player Pittsburgh had no quarterback last year the guy that they had looked like he was throwing with his off hand I mean he was terrible the guy and so they had Boyd like run they would hand off the Boyd they would run reverses with Boyd they Boyd would throw I mean he, he accounted for a huge percentage of Pittsburgh's offense. I think if Boyd was on Baylor, or Boyd was on uh, one of these high USC or UCLA or any of these high power teams, his numbers would have been really, really, really good. Um, so the fact that he had no quarterback, I think Boyd's a player that can step in right away. So if you're looking for, if not a lot of attention, Bengals uh, rookies don't often get a lot of attention. There's going to be other rookies in this draft. I think because the Bengals lost, and this is how I'm going to tie this into to guys that might want to buy and sell. So the Bengals lost Muhammad Sanu, who was a receiver, uh, played a, a lot of different positions for the Bengals, and was kind of will likely uh, Boyd will be expected to kind of step into his role. They also lost Marvin Jones, who was very helpful. The Bengals played, in my opinion, a lot better. Their offense was a lot better whenever Marvin Jones was playing well. It basically gave another threat. Now I have no idea who. I guess they have Eifert uh, to pair off of AJ Green, but. Man, the Bengals really lost two of their better receivers. I think they have some other guys, but Boyd's really going to be... Boyd could be, if he's worked as a similar... If he stays healthy and he's worked the same way as his Pittsburgh, he could easily put up a 1,000-yard season, which is really, really good for a rookie. I think that's obviously the high end is, is a 900,000-yard season for someone like that. But the, the way the Bengals... Again, we'll see how the Bengals' offense uh, emerges with a new offensive coordinator. But I just want to keep you in mind that the, you know people are going to be collecting Treadwell and Coleman and some of these other receivers. But keep in mind that the Bengals do throw a lot and they have kind of an open spot. And I believe even the head coach said Boyd is kind of expected to come in early. So you might want to monitor his prices and monitor his health. You want to make sure he's healthy. He's practicing and if all that is going well, and I certainly will let you guys know this along the way, I'm not buying his cards right now, and I'm a Bengals fan, and I'm kind of telling you this strategy, but I'm telling you I'm going to monitor. This is a situation I'll monitor. I'll monitor what his values are. Maybe there's a lot of Pitt fans. I don't know, but I'm going to monitor his values, monitor to see where they go in relation to where Treadwell trades, where Coleman trades, where some of these other receivers that were drafted trades, and if his is at low or lower than all of them, then um, it's there could be an opportunity there because he's one of those players that I think could legitimately, considering how much work he got last year, could legitimately step up and play. I gushed over, uh, what's his name, uh, Ezekiel Elliott. Um, people that saw him in his half shirt might not know what that was all about. He's basically referred to the hero in the half shirt because he often wore a, I mean, he always pretty much always wore kind of a half shirt when he played in college. Like some of those guys do. I actually like the college guys that do that. It basically shows, I think it's kind of a sign of toughness. Should they let, should the NCAA, the NFL, you can't even do that. And it's part of it's for protection and, 
uh, your own protection. So I guess, you know, again, it's a sign that NCAA doesn't care about these athletes. They let them run out there in a half shirt. But um, credit to Ezekiel Elliott, he's turned that into, I think fans, Ohio State fans might have started that and he kind of, he's played on it. I think it's even on his Twitter account. So it, to me, it shows that Ezekiel Elliott either has an agent or has uh, somebody or he himself likely has some kind of marketing touch to him. And so going to Dallas, I think is going to be a, just a natural fit. Um, Ezekiel Elliott's not a guy I'm projecting to be Emmett Smith or Thurman Thomas or Bo Jackson or Barry Sanders or any of these guys. But like I said on the last show, I could easily see Ezekiel Elliott dominating the NFL rushing game for two seasons, three seasons. Basically what I'm saying is I could easily see him being the first pick in fantasy football, not this year. Um, He'll certainly be piped up and talked up enough. And if you have Cowboy fans in your leagues, you certainly want to talk him up as much as possible. Maybe have him listen to this show because that's pretty much what I'm doing. But I think uh, year two, year three, if this guy stays healthy, if, you know, I've seen what running backs have done in Dallas, he certainly could, um, could be a dominating player. And that will absolutely soar his card. So there's certainly going to be people speculating on that early and often this year. So very good that he went to Dallas. The quarterbacks, I think I made it known on my last show how I feel about these two guys. With the Rams, uh, again, we had two teams trading up in to, to get these guys. I think in the Rams case, I, I believe it's 100% to sell tickets. I don't think they give, they give a crap about golf or they thought, I mean, obviously they thought more about golf than Wentz, but it could have been me as the number one ranked quarterback and I would have been drafted number one. So it, it, it does, they would have traded up to get me. It wasn't anything necessarily about golf. It's just, he was the best quarterback. They were going to trade up to get a quarterback to sell tickets. That's what I think the Rams, that was the Rams strategy. And golf um, has that, California look and so I don't know if that played into it but it could you know LA when you're talking about selling tickets it doesn't really matter that's the thing with the Rams strategy is they're pro whether they got golf or they didn't get golf chances are they were going to be getting the number one pick or a top pick the following season so maybe I'm assuming too much there but that, that's just my opinion about the Rams. And so they figure, why not trade up, get Goff? If he's a great player, maybe he turns our team into a borderline playoff team and we sell a bunch of tickets. If not, we're basically back in the same spot we were and maybe Goff is a year older. So I think that's what their thought, thought process was. Philadelphia must have saw something in what's-his-name, Carson Wentz. They must have saw something because I didn't, you know, this guy got hurt this year. I, I, didn't, I don't... I see his athleticism, but and I see his arm, but I, I that that's this is the second pick in the draft, so we'll see. Uh, again, these are pro teams; they have more insight to these players certainly than I do. Than I, I'm just l- looking at their film and watching them uh, on a regular basis on TV. So it's not, but a lot of that might be as much analysts as, as what some of these teams are doing. I don't know. But um, Carson Wentz, to me, is 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 a total flip of the coin, and in those cases, almost all hundred percent of the time is a sell for in my book. Um, so certainly, I don't think they're going to be expecting him to come in. I think their their plan is to try to make Bradford come back and be the quarterback. And if he gets injured, as he often does, then you can put Wentz in. I don't think they're looking. They're looking for a competition, but I don't think they're expecting this guy to go from basically the low end of college football to starting in the NFL. I, I just don't don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see. I might be wrong there. I think the Vikings made a nice pick getting Treadwell. There was kind of a run of wide receivers. There was three in a row, I believe, The Josh Doxson went from TCU. I can't remember for some reason what team he went to. I remember that Corey Coleman was the first one off the board, and that was... 
We'll see what what happens. Again, I uh, I think I made it known on my last show that I actually liked Treadwell the most out of all the wide receivers. I felt that he was the player that stepped up in big games, stepped up when he was double coveraged. Uh, did, well, didn't always put up the big numbers, but in, in my opinion, when Treadwell needed to step up, whether it be a third down and long, whatever it was, he was there for his team. Coleman was a product of Baylor. I think, you know, there was tons of Baylor receivers that put up big stats and big numbers. And this, so it's a, a little bit of that. Um, so we'll see if Coleman is really that. Doxton, Josh Doxton is really good. We'll see. Again, I should have it in front of me, but I don't. I don't know what QB he's paired up with, but I think a part of it is that. There was some other surprises. I believe that the Dallas, not the Dallas, the Denver Broncos, the Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos traded up into the first round to get Paxton Lynch. I think I made it known how I felt about him. I believe, I, I feel the same way about him as I do the number two pick, the Carson Wentz guy. Who knows? They're both kind of taller guys, a little more athletic than you're seeing. Um, how that, I know that looks good on TV and that looks good on paper, but who's been winning all the Super Bowls the last 10, 15 years? Okay, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and these guys don't move around in the pocket. I mean, actually, I take that back. Tom Brady especially moves around in the pocket well, but it's not like he's stepping up and running and he's running and gunning. There's a little bit of that. Aaron Rodgers does a little bit of that. Some of these other quarterbacks do a little bit of that, but it's all very, very much under control. And, um, and you see with Colin, someone like Colin Kaepernick, who who was kind of the star of the league, and even Robert Griffin, the star of the league one year, and so it, and that style of quarterback, kind of the run and shoot quarterback, you're either going to be really good or looking for a new team in a year or two. You're either going to be in the Super Bowl, and a year later you're going to be looking for a new team. That's that's kind of how the NFL is at with that style of quarterback. For whatever reason, they're just not willing ownership, coaches, whatever it is, um, just isn't willing to uh, give those players uh, uh, typically a long enough rope or have a bad year. So that's just the way it is. Maybe there's some other factors and other things in play there, but uh, that's just the way I see it. So certainly see Paxton Lynch and Carson Wentz kind of in that mold. And so for me, if it, if their cards are really selling well and they went to two really popular teams and teams with some momentum, especially in the Denver Broncos case, I'm certainly a seller of them. And maybe even if I'm a fan of these teams, I'm a seller and maybe looking to reacquire later on because I don't think either one, while they might have a sensational start, such a sensational game or two. I the the NFL. I think we all realize this, guys. This is the NFL. This is not. You know, look at Johnny Manziel. Look at uh, Jamarcus Russell. Look at all these quarterbacks. Look at uh, Christian Ponder and and uh, Blaine Gabbert and all these guys, all the way down, top to bottom. Uh, first, second, third round picks. Not all of them turn out like Russell Wilson. And even Russell Wilson's cards have cooled off a little bit. And he's been on the doorstep of the Super Bowl or in the Super Bowl uh, many times uh, in his young career. So um, oftentimes early in these guys' career, it's the most volatile. And then when it kind of look at Aaron Rodgers, everybody, everybody wants to, you know, bow down on and shine his shoes. I mean, when's the last time the, the Packers have been in a Super Bowl? Okay, I mean, I mean, I know they won a Super Bowl, and it, it, it's not that long ago, but they're not consistently knocking at the door like the Patriots have. But um, so you don't need to necessarily do that. I just am uh, maybe critiquing these players a little bit harder than I should. I'll be honest; I haven't caught up. I'm recording this on a Saturday morning, so I haven't caught up with kind of the later rounds. And I only caught bits and pieces of the second and third round of the NFL draft. So there are certainly more players that have gone. The last one I want to talk about is Jacoby Brissett, 
quarterback from NC State. I believe I mentioned him on the last podcast, I believe, uh, that made it onto the show, where I um, alluded to him kind of as looking like an old Donovan McNabb. He really has nice feet. He's not quick in the pocket, but he has nice feet. He kind of is elusive, reminds me a little bit of uh, maybe Ben Roethlisberger for, for those that are you a little bit long, younger. A little more fluid than Ben Roethlisberger, but a similar you know, guys kind of shed off of them in a similar matter. Now, how that translates to all these HGH and steroided up NFL players, I don't know. But um, I, I did, I did think it was funny. Not funny, but I thought there was a little bit of validation that the New England Patriots, who already have spent a high draft pick on Garoppolo or whatever his name is, they spend another relatively. I believe this was the third round. Maybe I think it was the third round. Uh, that the Patriots, it might even be higher than that, that the Patriots uh, spent a pick on Jacoby Brissett. Um, and I believe he got even drafted before Connor Cook, which confused a lot of people, but didn't surprise me that much. Um, I think the upside, I think if you're drafting a quarterback outside of that first kind of upper echelon guy, you're looking for that upside guy. And I think someone like Brissett, like I said, just based on how he moves around in the pocket, I think if he can, um, if his arm, if his arm strength can be there and he can time his throws out in the NFL game, he could be a quarterback. I could see him being an effective quarterback and I could see him being a good player. So we'll see what ends up happening there but that those are the guys i want to highlight now i'll do a full review on our next show or not necessarily a full review but i'll kind of go over the final touches of the draft if any of you have players and it's only going to be offense i don't i mean some of these defensive guys like i was aware of who the Bengals drafted i'm aware of some of these other defensive players that have been drafted but I know a lot of the offensive players. So if your team drafted a guy and you kind of want to know my opinion of them, and again, um, not that my opinion is better or worse or anything like that than anybody else, but I guarantee you that I, I definitely analyze a lot of these players with, I realize there's a lot of ways to analyze college players in a biased way, depending on what conference you might have a bias towards, depending on what schools you might have a bias for, depending on what style of football you have a bias towards. The way I was analyzing it, I didn't give a crap about the conference, the school, the style. I didn't give a crap about any of that. All I cared about was number one, production and two, who that production was against. And so I have a nice gauge on who's a productive player, but not only that, who's a productive player against talent that might be not not exactly like the NFL, not even necessarily comparable, but relatively close. And who's a guy that might be able to step in and, and produce? You know, it's all about what these guys do after the fact. If they're going to the bar, if they're smoking weed, if they're banging all these chicks, then... <laughs> there's no, no amount of an, uh, analyzing these guys. Uh, it's going to correct any of that. You can look at Johnny Manziel. You can look at, you know, Ryan Leaf down the line. There's plenty of players that have fallen to those temptations. So that's basically what I wanted to talk about on the NFL draft front. Now what I want to talk about is this came in via Twitter. And so a uh, father was asking, hey, what what kind of cards can I basically buy and resell? What should I be looking for for cards that I should be buying and reselling? Something I can sit down and do with my, my son. And so uh, I think this is a great question. This might be – you might be in the same boat. might be your son or your daughter. might be uh, just for yourself – May, or whatever it doesn't really matter but a lot of us find us in this spot like what if i'm going to be buying and reselling cards what should i be looking for um really what i i, I can't maybe i i'll tell you uh, kind of as specifically as possible what i am looking for um at the moment and this is in on check out my cards but i'll also give you an ebay example at, as well i don't have really hard and, and fast rules necessarily to the kind of players that I buy, but I certainly try to focus on certain sets or certain kind 
of of cards and i think that's probably my first tip before i get into really specific cards or specific kinds of cards that and specific situations that you can look for and you can take advantage of basically um the first tip is to really focus on the building the process in which you search for the cards you watch the cards and you basically identify a price that you want to pay for it, essentially set a budget. So I think, especially if you're sitting down with your son, I would turn it into make that be the bulk of the kind of the lesson, so to speak, is that we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to look for these types of cards. We're going to maybe look for this player or this sport or this kind of card for this these reasons. And we're going to kind of, you know, communicate those reasons. So that's going to be step one. Step two is to now find those cards, kind of identify them, maybe develop some valuation for what those cards normally sell for. And then the third step is actually finding those cards that might be mislisted or selling for a cheaper price for whatever reason and watching them, bidding on them, and then buying them and ultimately reselling them. Those last steps are what the question kind of revolved around what cards can i buy and then kind of resell with my son but not the success of that relies ultimately on the process in which you searched for that card uh, found that card um, identified if it was a good deal or not and then essentially either pulled the trigger or didn't pull the trigger on buying that card the better you do that, the better, obviously, your your results are going to be buying and selling those cards. And so if you want winning results, trust me, it's easy. Once you get the process down, once you know what to look for, then the process of selling those cards gets much easier. I might be saying something very obvious there, but I think a lot of times, especially in business, I notice people, even really well-paid people, focus so much on kind of the the end result, whereas if we focus on kind of the process to get to that end result, we'll actually get to that end result easier and more consistently if we just don't focus on actually the result, we focus on what it takes to get to that result. So I just wanted to explain that. Um, the And I think that's a great lesson. A lot of us listening to this podcast know that. But I'm talking in terms of his question. He was talking about his son. I don't know how old his son is, but that's a less, a really good lesson to teach your son, whether he continues to collect baseball cards or not. Those are, are really good lessons just with anything, with financial planning, budgeting, buying a car, buying a home, buying a computer, buying whatever it is, um, it's just really good to have a plan and a budget and to execute on that. So I think those are good life lessons. And so that's why I'm trying to kind of emphasize that point. Now, very specifically to get to the listeners' questions, what to look for, I will start with eBay. Now, eBay, back when I used to sell quite a bit, that was the early 2000s, early 2002, 2003 was when I really started selling quite a bit on eBay. I sold on eBay from 2003 all the way into probably call it 2008-ish. I can't believe we're all the way into 2016. Time is absolutely flying by. But um, So it's been a while since I've regularly sold on eBay. Back in those days, it really didn't make a lot of sense for me, at least with the items I was selling, to put them at a fixed price. I would sometimes put it at a fixed price, but typically it exceeded where the market typically paid for it. So it's sometimes sell, but not always. Now, what I did have a lot of luck with is listing items for 99 cents and having them just be bidded up. Sometimes they would be bidded all the way up to some insane prices. For whatever reason, typically it was international buyers. Now, I know the international buyers kind of gone away on eBay. And so maybe some of that bidding up, that's what kind of took away all that bidding up. And now eBay really has turned into kind of a buy it now marketplace, which really puts it in competition with Amazon and 
any other e-commerce website and check out my cards. Pretty much every website out there has buy it now capabilities, whereas eBay was known for its auctions. And so really what's that's created is it's it's really made it's eBay is struggling because of that and they will continue to struggle if they try to compete like that um but what it's done is now the total opposite is true with eBay as a seller if you're a seller you really want to just list things kind of at the top of the mark or over the mark in terms of a price and then accept offers underneath because i remember putting best offers on things it might even you had to pay for that back when i was selling more regular Early, but I would almost ne- I wouldn't get a lot of offers now. Uh, I am selling on eBay. Um, it's for a project that I'm working on. I will report on that project. So I am giving you kind of up to date information on. I have sold several. I've almost sold a thousand dollars worth of baseball cards on eBay in the last six weeks or so. So I will update you guys on how that's going, but I'm essentially giving you updated information that eBay's really turned into listed at a high price and accept buy it nows or accept best offers, excuse me. And those offers will come in and and especially if it's a nice card, I get offers almost right away. And or sometimes cards will just oftentimes I'll have best offer listed there and the card will just sell for the full price for whatever reason. So that that creates a spot on eBay where sometimes you the people and including myself will list a card for 99 cents. We think, "Oh, maybe people will bid on this." And there's people that do this all the time. I actually see a lot of completed auctions on eBay right now where the car, we'll just take just any old card. We're not, we won't take a specific card, but we'll we'll pick a card out of the air and um, say that normally it sells between ten and twelve dollars on eBay plus shipping. So it regularly sells between ten and twelve dollars, just all the time, basically. Not all the time, but the la- we'll just you know the last couple sales have been ten to twelve dollars. But somebody decides to put an auction on for ninety nine cents and uh, you know regular price for shipping. And just let it run for seven days. Well, what I've seen happen a lot of the times is that auction will end at 99 cents and one bid. Or maybe there'll be two bids and it sells for a dollar and 12 cents or something like that. And so a card that consistently sells for more when it's sold in auction format just doesn't get the bids it used to get for whatever reason. I don't exactly know. There's probably lots of reasons why. Um, but it definitely shows the, the lack of strength that is in eBay's marketplace. If there was a lot of strength in the marketplace, and maybe there is. Maybe it's showing the lack of strength in sports cards marketplace. But there's a lot of opportunity there that if you spot, I'm not saying every opportunity like that is worth buying, but that would be my first thing that I'm looking for on eBay are the sellers that are listing cards that typically sell for more sell for maybe $10 or more on a regular, maybe not a regular basis, but on a regular enough basis that if you got it for 99 cents in one bid, you could, you could uh, reprice that card and resell that on eBay. It's a little bit harder only because you're eating at $3 in shipping or whatever the person charges for shipping. That's why I actually execute the exact same strategy that – a similar strategy, not exact same, but a strategy very similar on Check Out My Cards right now inside my account that I started in June of last year with $100. So I buy cards – for a, a low price, you know, typically serial numbered cards, cards with a serial number less, 50 or less typically, or 25 or less. And I try to get them for, you know, I try to get them for under a dollar, but usually it's under $2. I almost never pay more than $2 for a card unless it's, I don't say I never pay $2 for a card, but but I'm, normally what I'm buying is between between 50 cents and $2. And I'm typically repricing those cards for $5 or more. Trying to three times, four times, five times, sometimes 10 times my money. And it is a strategy that works. It works well on checking my cards because I'm not eating then $3. If I buy a card for 99 cents one bid on eBay, I'm still paying, call it maybe $3 for shipping in a lot of cases. So I really paid $4 for that card. And then if I were to turn it around and resell that card even for $10... 
eBay and PayPal and all the other stuff is going to eat into my profits there to the point to where I really need to resell that card maybe for 15 or maybe even $20. You're able to do that on Check Out My Cards in a little tighter range um, simply because you're not eating that shipping cost every time you're flipping a card. Now, I will give you recent examples. So I am executing on this strategy back on 420. I was not smoking. I was selling a Hannes Wagner card. This was a 2015 Panini Cooperstown Hall of Fame card. So it's not even a Topps card. This is a modern Panini unlicensed baseball card numbered, although they probably have the Hall of Fame license for this. Uh, It's a blue parallel numbered out of 25. So Hannes Wagner card, Panini, 2015, serial numbered to 25, two of 25. I bought it for, drumroll please, we'll cue the band. And what do you, you have a, maybe a number in your mind? I bought it for $1.95. Now that might sound expensive. If you're at a card show, I certainly could see finding a card like this in a dollar bin or a 50 cent bin, maybe. I've found even, maybe even more rare, more valuable cards in similar bins at certain card shows. So in a card show setting, this might seem like full price or right around what you pay. Um, in a retail setting, though, $1.95 for a Hannes Wagner card serial number to 25 is actually a good price. And so that's why I immediately bought this card. And drumroll, please, what did I reprice the card at? You can come up with a mi- uh, number in your mind. If I would have got $9.99, it would have been a good flip. If I got $14.99, it would have been a really good flip. But what I repriced the card at was $19.99, and you better believe I sold that card. And it was within, uh, again, all the cards in this account are less than six months old. I believe this card specifically was likely less than maybe about, call it 30 days, maybe 40 days max old. It was likely less than a month old in my account. So remember, I started this account with $100 and I bought and sold a single card for $1.95 and sold it for $19.99. So I essentially got 20% of my account value back in one single sale. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to target. Uh, my most recent sale is is on a small, you know, those buy it for a dollar, sell it for 20. Uh, I'll tell you, I got, I got, I won't say I got lucky. I have a process that I go through on check out my cards. I search for seal number cards. I search for really low seal number cards. I also go through the sales. I click browse on check out my cards. I search on sale and I search for recently posted because I figure whoever's maybe most recently posted a sale maybe hasn't been picked through or maybe they didn't realize they were basically giving this stuff away or maybe they were trying to give this stuff away. And they ran a sale basically to promote that they're trying to basically sell their cards for at or below a market price or a retail price, essentially. And so I do that and I'm able to find these cards and resell them. So typically when I sold a Joel Thornton card in a similar fashion, I bought it for forty. I took, I accepted an offer to sell it for three seventy five. I mean, I'm doubling a little bit more than doubling my money there. I was trying to do a little bit better than that, but that was a, a another Panini card. That was a select green prism out of twenty five. So um, not bad buy for a dollar forty and a flip for. 375 exactly so those are the kind of things i'm trying to do i'm searching i'm really i'm a big buyer right now of cards bowman chrome cards like gold refractors orange refractors black refractors green refractors the the ones that are serial numbered usually 50 or less i'm trying to find those Somebody, you know, on check out my cards, you can consistently find those, literally consistently find them. Uh, maybe not on a daily basis, but if you consistently look, you can find those cards for under a dollar. And you can often price them for $2.99, $3.99, $4.99, sometimes $19.99, whatever you want to do sometimes. There's no other card on the pri- on the site, and there's, there's not a lot of sale history there. Um, obviously, will I get that full price? I don't know. You know, with some of it, I'm not expecting it. But really, all it takes is one sale, two sales. So I, I see social media sometimes. There's a few sellers on Check Out My Cards uh, that have a lot of cards, and they basically implement this exact strategy I'm talking about. And they're often made fun of, or they often, oh, yeah, such high prices. I bet he never sells anything. You guys would really, really be surprised 
what people buy sometimes on Check Out My Cards. And the great thing is once the sale goes through, the odds of a reversal are pretty low. And so once that sale goes through, you're pretty much um, cashing that check um, for the most part. So long-winded answer, um, I would... Focus on the process of finding cards right now. For me, I'm looking for those really rare cards to where there's not going to be many on check on my cards for sale. There's not going to be many on eBay. There's not many of these cards in circulation as it is since they're numbered to 50 or less. In a lot of cases, it might be that there's only less than maybe call it maybe 10 or maybe even five that are even for sale at a given moment, or maybe you have the only one that's for sale at a given moment. The rest of the cards are either in packs still, or they're in collections or wherever they're, they're in outer space or whatever. So if you have that single card that is for sale, when that one buy, all you need is one buyer to come through. Now, if I would have priced this Hannes Wagner at that, I believe in my mind, there is some kind of price threshold. Do could I have priced this Hannes Wagner card that I sold for nineteen ninety? Could I price it for twenty nine? Could I price it for thirty nine? Could I price it for ninety nine? So I'm 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 actually current. I'm gonna test. I'm going to test those uh, questions again. I only have th- I'm constrained to a hundred dollars starting. I have sixty nine dollars cash in this account, so I'm actually doing really well. I have. 489 cards, 301 for sale with a total asking price of $800. So think about this. About uh, almost a year ago, not quite a year ago, I started this check on my cards account with $100. All I've done is bought and resold cards. I have $70 cash, so I have almost my full principal back. But on top of that, I have 489 total cards, 301 uh, excuse me, 352 I have for sale. So I have about 130 that I don't have priced for a number of different reasons. But the ones I have priced, I have an $880, $890 asking price on that. So if somebody came in and bought my whole portfolio for full price, I would have reached $1,000, which was my lofty goal, you know, my like Olympics, you know, Tiger Woods major, you know, winning the Grand Slam kind of goal was um, to get to $1,000. I don't think I'm going to get there in six months unless I I, absolutely light it up here. But you get the idea. You can do really well with just $100. Now, this idea probably scales up into the $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 range. So if you have that kind of money, you can scale this idea up. It doesn't scale up likely... It probably even scales up into the $10,000 range if you have that kind of money to invest. I don't want to use the word invest, but to spend on cards to buy and resell on Check Out My Cards. There's a different strategy than what I'm doing that's probably even a better way to make money. Um, I'm just using basically $100 here as, as an example, and I think it actually applies well to the listener question where he's sitting down with his son. Chances are... Dad and son, if you're like me, I, I don't have a son yet, but when I sit down with my son, we're not going to be buying, we're not going to be buying and trading thousands of dollars of stocks or guards or anything uh, at a given time. We'll likely be using a budget that he's more than likely to start out with when he gets at it on his own. So, folks, that about wraps it up on today's show. We've hit the hour mark. I don't want to go too much farther over that, just in fear of losing the rest of this show. Hopefully, you guys are all doing well out there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hopefully, you guys are kicking back, relaxing, don't work too hard. You know, that's always been my motto. Save a little bit of cash. And don't worry about saving money on gas. Don't worry about insurance payments on cars. Don't worry about how much it costs even to repair your car. Because we all pay those things over our lifetime. It's it's just a cost of kind of living. Think about how much would you pay for a car that would save your life in a serious accident. Think about how much you would pay for a car that if your wife was maybe driving right now or maybe one of your kids are old enough to drive or maybe your wife is driving your kids, your young kids, in a car right now 
and maybe that car gets 40 miles to the gallon because uh, I have a friend that lifts weights a lot. He probably could get up under your bumper and kind of lift your car up off the ground. That's how light they make those cars. Ask yourself how much you would pay for a car that would save your life. Next time you see a serious accident, uh, you probably should get out and try to help if it's safe to get out. And go see what happens to people that are in these types of cars and get in a serious accident. And (laughs) it's not good what happens. So what it'll do is it'll make you go and do research and find out that uh, there's a big, big, big gap between what is given awards as a safe car and given IHA 70 picks and five-star ratings. There's a lot of cars that get that. But there's only a handful of cars that are made to really actually, that are really only designed essentially to save your life. Because trust me, they don't save you any money uh, any other way. So uh, that's my plea to all of you. Ask yourself that question. How much would you pay? You probably all know people that have unfortunately died or been injured in a car crash by now. I know several that have died in car crashes. And I can picture in my mind the car they were driving. And if they were driving a safe car, I don't know. Maybe things would have been different. You don't want to be asking yourself that question. That's why I say this to you now is because I care about you guys. I care about not only you, But I care about, um, even if your family doesn't listen, uh, they are an extension of you. And so, you know, do what's what's best for your family. And um, if you do a little research online... You'll be you'll be packing them up in the in the Honda or the uh, you know the little Nissan or whatever it is, and doing the right thing. So hopefully you guys are doing well out there. Thanks for tuning in. Don't work too hard. It's not worth it. They're, they'll the bank will loan you money right now at like two percent. They don't three percent. You buy a home, they're three and a half percent or something right now. It's just they, they can't make money on that. So it's, uh, you know, you can't, you know, don't work too hard when the banks are just, you know, basically farting out money to, to anybody that wants it. So at least here in the U.S., we'll see where that what that path that leads us back down towards uh, as a nation. But until then, we'll all be sitting here along for the ride. Thanks for tuning in to the Sports Card Show podcast. I, I say it all the time. Thank you so much for listening. I really mean that. Uh, I say it all the time, but I really, really mean it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for everybody that contacts me on Twitter, email, however it is. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I hope um, this podcast can not only inform you, but in some of these things that I talk about off topic, I'm trying to impact your life uh, at least in in a positive manner. So hopefully I'm able to do that as well. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, we are out of here.